0: Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast. Episode number 80, Nicole Casares, Blind Testing, Lessons from Houston. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Ed Chang, from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. We bring virtual workshops to you throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is Nicole Casares. Nicole is professor of communication at the University of St. Thomas in Houston, where she works on issues of media law, media ethics, and wrongful convictions. Nicole served as the chair of the board of directors of the Houston Forensic Science Center from July 2015 to June 2019, and was one of the lawyers who represented Texas death row inmate Anthony Graves at the time of his exoneration in 2010. Our podcast today features Nicole's new article, Solving Daubert's Dilemma for the Forensic Sciences Through Blind Testing, which was co-authored with Sandy Thompson. In it, Nicole recounts the Houston Crime Lab's experience implementing blind testing as part of its quality control procedures. For years, academics, reformers, and blue-ribbon panels have all emphasized the importance of proficiency testing, and more specifically, blind proficiency testing, for improving the reliability of forensic evidence. Houston has now shown that it can be done, but as Nicole will discuss, in transforming theory into practice, sometimes the devil is in the details. Nicole, delighted to have you on Excited Utterance. Welcome.
1: Well, thanks. I'm glad to be here.
0: You have a really interesting background. You're an attorney. You're a professor of communication. And most importantly for our purposes here, you were the chair of the board of directors of the Houston Crime Lab for the last four years. Can you start off by telling us a little more about how you got involved with the Houston Forensic Science Center and why it's unique or relatively unique among crime labs?
1: Sure. The Houston Forensic Science Center was created after the Houston Police Department crime lab scandal really shook the city of Houston and its mayor and city council members. You may remember back in the early 2000s that the Houston Police Department crime lab suffered really wave after wave of crime lab scandals, including analysts who dry lab their work and resulting in wrongful convictions. And the problems just didn't seem to stop. And as a result, The Houston Police Department, I mean, to its credit, really, said, you know what, we we really don't want to run the city crime lab anymore. And the National Academy of Sciences report had come out in 2009 recommending that crime labs should be independent. They should not be operated under a police department or a prosecutorial agency And so the city of Houston really took that on and created the Houston Forensic Science Center as an independent lab run by scientists and overseen by a board of directors of citizens. And so that's where I came in. I was appointed to the original board in 2012. And really because I had represented a death row inmate who was ultimately exonerated And I also teach a class in wrongful convictions. So the city council felt that I had, or the mayor and city council felt that I had experience in the problems that junk science can create and that I would be a good person to oversee the operations of this new lab.
0: What a great and unique experience. So let me turn to the paper that you have with Sandy Thompson on blind testing. What do you mean specifically by blind testing, and why is it thought to be important to solving the problem of reliability in forensic science?
1: So all crime labs, to be accredited, their analysts have to take what are called proficiency tests, and those proficiency tests are created by third-party vendors, and analysts know that they are taking a test. So when a crime lab analyst takes a proficiency test, they're called open or declared proficiency tests. The analyst knows that he or she is taking the test. And like in any situation, my my students who I teach, if they know that they're taking a test, well, they study for it and they do their very best work. That's fine, but it doesn't give us a very good picture of how analysts perform on their day-to-day casework. Because a test, you know, we, we pay special attention to a test. We know we're being evaluated. So blind proficiency testing, what we mean by that is that the analysts at the Houston Forensic Science Center, they know that they're being tested, but they don't know which evidence sample that comes across their desk is a test. So in a sense, it's like a pop quiz. It tests their ability as they do their daily work, and we believe it's more reflective of how they perform on ordinary casework. Proficiency tests, those declared proficiency tests, have been criticized by a lot of folks. For one, they tend to be easy, whereas the blind proficiency tests that we put through our casework for our analysts, they reflect a whole range of difficulties. So I think I've answered part of your question. That is, what is blind proficiency testing? Why is it so important? Well, one reason is because it gives a better picture of the actual quality of the laboratory's work. The other really important function for blind proficiency testing is that it provides a way for the lab to actually calculate what's called an error rate. So in forensic science, generally, we don't know what the error rates are because in an ordinary crime lab situation, we don't know ground truth. So a fingerprint analyst looks at a fingerprint and says, oh, that fingerprint belongs to so-and-so. But we don't really know that because we don't know ground truth. And so how often does a fingerprint examiner make a mistake? We don't know because we don't know the real answer. But with blind proficiency testing, the lab does know the answer. We know the answer. Therefore, we can calculate how often the analyst gets it right, how often the analyst gets it wrong.
0: Now, I think it's fair to say that academics have been dreaming about blind testing for a very long time. And you know there are lots and lots of forensic labs across the country, and they get along without ever doing this kind of thing. What was the impetus for implementing blind testing in Houston? What got the ball rolling on this project?
1: Well, a couple of things I would say. One is simply that our executive director, Dr. Peter Stout, worked in Navy drug testing labs, and blind proficiency testing has been used in military labs for a number of years. So he knew that it could be done. I think the other reason that it took off in Houston is simply given the history of the Houston Forensic Science Center. We are one of, if not maybe the only truly independent crime lab in the country. And as such, we kind of feel the eyes of the country on the lab. We have this horrible history from the old Houston Police Department lab, and we really have a desire to bring back the public's trust in the lab. So using best practices, it's something that's really important for us at the Houston Forensic Science Center.
0: I want to talk a little bit about nuts and bolts. At a board level or at an executive level, you decided to be innovative. You wanted to impose blind testing. Then what happened? What kind of processes did the center have to build to implement the blind testing?
1: a lot more than we originally thought. (laughs) It's really much more complicated and difficult than I think the board members ever imagined. And we are blessed at the Houston Forensic Science Center that we had innovative scientists and quality directors who were willing to figure out ways to overcome those obstacles. But you said, what are some of the things that we had to build? Well, for one, the laboratory implemented a case manager system. I don't know whether we could do blind testing without having a case manager system, which that just means that we have a division of the lab that acts as a go-between between test requesters, which are typically law enforcement officers, and then bench analysts, that creates a buffer for one, so that analysts aren't exposed to case irrelevant relevant information that could bias their results. But also because we have a case manager system, they implement the delivery of evidence back and forth between the HPD property room and the actual analysts. And there needs to be a structure there Otherwise, analysts will know they're being tested. I don't know if that really makes a lot of sense. Maybe you can ask me some more questions about it if it doesn't.
0: Well, it seems to me that make a lot of sense. What you've got here is because every single sample looks exactly the same and it always comes from the same place, there's no way to put the things together.
1: Exactly. That's exactly right. And every sample needs to follow the same chain of custody. It needs to have all the same barcodes. It needs to look the same as any other piece of evidence. Otherwise, the analysts will realize, hey, this is a blind test. And if they know it's a blind test, then it doesn't do what it's supposed to do. It's just like a declared proficiency test. So having a case manager system really helps implement the program just at the very, well, I mean, throughout the entire process, but it gets the ball rolling, so to speak.
0: And what you've pointed out here is that logistically, you need this additional module, these case managers. What about institutionally or culturally? Were there challenges in implementing the change. One of the common concerns about implementing blind testing is resistance on the part of the analysts. Did you encounter any of that?
1: So we expected that we would, and that was one of the fears, that the analysts would feel as though they were being unfairly surveilled, that you know, be like Big Brother looking over their shoulder trying to catch them in a mistake. That was the fear, and honestly, we did not experience that pushback from the analysts. I think that was in part because the lab did an excellent job of communicating with the analysts before implementing blind testing, what it was, what the goals were. Then the lab director (laughs) also came up with this motivation program where he Offered and, of course, still does to all the analysts that he will provide them with a $10 Starbucks card if they can correctly identify a blind test sample. On the other hand, if they incorrectly call a sample a blind and it really isn't, then they have to pay him a dollar. And something simple like this really <laughs> was very popular and remains very popular. These laboratory analysts, they are very smart people and they they spend their professional life analyzing evidence and to set up this kind of challenge where can I spot a blind can I beat the quality department so the lab has a dedicated quality division and I have to say the Houston Forensic Science Center is one of the largest labs crime labs in the country And having a dedicated quality division is another really important aspect of the blind testing program. The quality division constructs the mock evidence samples that go through the bench analyst workflow. Matching wits with the quality division to try to spot those samples is something that our analysts really enjoy doing. And what that does is it creates a feedback loop. The quality division learns Why did the analysts identify this as a blind, and what can we do in the future to make the sample a better sample so that they don't spot it? And then one other thing I want to say about our analysts that I think kind of surprised us a little was that they really like being able to answer on the witness stand when they're asked, well, how do you know that your answer is right? How how can we be sure that you're really doing your job properly? and they can say, because I'm blind tested. My lab knows how well I do because I complete blind test samples.
0: I just love the story about the Starbucks card. It's amazing how these little things can help implement institutional change and how to motivate people in the right way. You turn the entire thing into a challenge as opposed to something that's being imposed from above. Another often leveled concern about test samples is, as you pointed out earlier in the program, that they're too easy. Is the Starbucks card, well, for lack of a better term, the Starbucks card program, is that also a mechanism for preventing the samples from being too easy? Did you worry about or have problems with samples that were too easy or, on the flip side, too hard?
1: Okay, so. I have a few things that I need to mention here. I think we have experienced in a couple of situations where a sample was too easy and it was identified as such for that reason. However, that is not the main reason that analysts pick up on blind samples. The most frequent reason that an analyst identified a blind sample as such was because our quality division filled in the accompanying paperwork too neatly. That's the number one reason that an analyst spots a blind sample because the handwriting is too neat, the paperwork was filled in too perfectly, all the spelling was right on the paperwork. And law enforcement officers, when they're filling in paperwork, they're in a hurry, they're trying to get a sample off, they're not so meticulous with their, <laughs> with their handwriting. So that's the number one reason why analysts spot a blind sample. Now, with respect to the difficulty level, we try to mimic casework. That's our goal. So we don't want the samples to be too easy. We don't want them to be too hard, although we do, from time to time, create the quality division creates what they call a challenge sample, because we do want to see how analysts perform on samples that are difficult because those will come through the lab from time to time. But in general, we are trying to mimic casework so that we get an accurate picture of how our analysts perform on their daily tasks.
0: All told, how many areas have you implemented blind testing in at this point in Houston?
1: So the laboratory has seven different divisions, and we have implemented blind testing in six of those divisions, all of them except the crime scene unit, because for obvious reasons, we're not quite sure how we can create a fake crime scene (laughs) and send CSIs to a fake crime scene. But all of the other divisions, we have implemented blind testing. So that's toxicology, latent prints, firearms, seized drugs, forensic biology or DNA, and finally forensic multimedia, which are cell phones and laptops, etc.
0: And what are the results?
1: So far our article focuses on the number of blind samples that were run through December 31st of 2018, and that was at that time that was about 900 blind samples. And in all of those examples the expected result was obtained by the analysts, or the sample was identified as a blind test. Not a whole lot of those, but probably a dozen or so. Or, in one instance that I'm thinking of, the quality division actually contaminated a sample themselves, accidentally of course. The analyst came back with an answer that was unexpected, but it turned out the analyst was right.
0: Well, those are very impressive results so far. Let me ask you a couple of broader questions about how the Houston Crime Lab might teach us or other crime labs going forward. One thing that struck me about your paper was just how hard it was to get this blind testing apparatus right. As I said before, it's pretty well agreed that blind testing is the gold standard. But it's often easy for academics to just banter about an idea without truly understanding how difficult it is to implement. Is there advice that you have, and here I'm broadly advice rather than really specifics, which would probably take several days. Is there broad advice that you might have for other crime labs who would be interested in implementing blind testing? If you had to do it over again, what might have made the process easier?
1: Constructing evidence samples can be easier in some divisions than in others. So for our toxicology department, for example, we purchase human blood that has alcohol in different concentrations added to it. That's pretty simple. In other divisions of the lab, constructing those evidence samples is very difficult. So Forensic multimedia is a great example. Forensic multimedia, our analysts look at cell phones, they look at tablet computers. In order to construct a blind sample, our lab has to first of all purchase a cell phone or a tablet, and then has to construct it. In other words, give it a history. So let's say we go and buy a burner phone at a convenience store. That phone has to fool an analyst into believing that it's a real cell phone that was owned by a real person. Think about your cell phone and all the photos you have on it and the call logs, the call history, all the stuff you have on that cell phone. Our quality division has to construct a cell phone so that it will fool an examiner and actually look like a real cell phone. Now, so that seems like an impossible task, but that's what we're doing. What would make it easier if other labs were doing it too and we could share constructed samples? In other words, we could create sort of an interlaboratory loan process where after we've constructed a cell phone, we can send it to another lab and they can use it as a blind test sample so that we don't have to construct every piece of evidence ourselves.
0: So my other broad question goes back to a question I asked. Sandy Thompson a couple of years ago when I had her as a guest on the podcast. There's little doubt that the Houston Crime Lab is, for lack of a better term, something of a unicorn, right? You had these special events that occurred, massive reform efforts, you have an independent lab, and then you have people like you and your executive director who are willing to push the envelope. But you might not have these attributes elsewhere. So my question is this, is Houston really going to be the vanguard leading the way, or is it going to stay a unicorn? So how do we get other cities to follow suit?
1: Well, first, they have to know what we're doing in Houston, and they have to know that it is doable, that it's not impossible. And so, I mean, that's really part of the reason why Professor Thompson and I wrote the article, is so that we can start educating at least the legal community, more about what's going on. Certainly, the lab executive director, Dr. Stout, he has been speaking at various conferences about what the lab is doing with respect to blind testing. And there's a lot of interest in it. And he has been contacted by a few other labs who are interested in at least trying to replicate some of the things that the Houston Forensic Science Center is doing. I hope that the HFSC is not a unicorn. I hope that other labs will start replicating, imitating some of these processes. And I think given the interest and excitement in the forensic community regarding what we're doing, I think that it will catch on at least to some degree. It also creates a way for forensic science to create error rates and show that there is validity behind some of these forensic techniques. So that should also be a motivating factor for forensic scientists.
0: Well, Nicole, thanks for taking the time to talk about your experiences on the board of the Houston Forensic Science Center and talking about how it implemented blind testing. Great having you on the show.
1: Thank you very much. It was a pleasure.
0: As the old Thomas Edison adage goes, success is 10% inspiration and 90% perspiration. There's no doubt that the idea of blind testing in forensic science was an incredibly powerful one, but the potential of the idea couldn't be realized without proper implementation. And my first reaction to reading Nicole and Sandy's paper was amazement at how tricky it was to implement blind testing. How it took a great deal of time and resources, trial and error, and dedicated professionals to make it happen. Beyond the case management system, it's so interesting that coming up with test samples is so hard. But I guess it shouldn't be a surprise to me. After all, to students or any other external observer, exams seem to simply exist. You show up, and the exam is there. But as an instructor, I know that crafting a good exam often takes hours of meticulous crafting, testing, and revision. The other key thing I take away from my discussion with Nicole is a deep sense of hope and optimism. It's incredibly exciting to now have a real demonstration of blind testing in a forensic laboratory. Houston has now done the initial startup work and paved the path for future adopters. Just consider how important this development is. For one, it gives us accuracy rates. It also enables the lab to receive feedback and to improve on its methods. And finally, case management turns the lab into a modern, scientific, and process-driven entity. Everything is anonymized and professionalized, which arguably is how we want science to be. When the medical lab tests your blood, you expect them to simply impose their standard procedure. They're not supposed to shade things based on desired outcomes or who you are. And that's what we're looking for with crime labs. I'm excited for what lies ahead. Next time you see forensic analysts in your town, tell them about Nicole's paper, and let's see if we can get blind testing adopted at a forensic lab near you. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, the University of Arkansas School of Law, as well as the Vanderbilt Institute for Digital Learning. The associate producer is Alex Nunn, and the production editor is Grace Di Pietra. Additional production assistance is provided by Francesca Rutherford, and music is provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your host, Ed Chang, and I hope you'll join me again next time when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof.